You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, our Bible passage today is about the renewal of a discouraged believer. In the 9th century BC, there was a man named Elijah. He was a prophet, powerful man, but one day he lost all hope. He left Israel, went out into the wilderness, laid down beneath a broom tree, and asked God to let him die. The question I want to raise before you this morning is, where do you go, what do you do when you need hope, when you're discouraged? Happens to all of us. God renews Elijah's hope, and the way he does it, I want to suggest to you, is Not so much with a still, small voice. You may have heard that. But I want to offer you an alternative reading this morning of 1 Kings chapter 19. Because I think God renews Elijah with a question. And I think he wants to put the question to us this morning as well. The question, here's a preview. The question is, what are you doing here, Elijah? God asks it to him twice. Anytime you see repetition in the Bible, pay attention. Anytime God asks you the same question twice, pay attention. Now, let's back up. Before we read this text, I just want to fill in a little of the backstory here. Elijah has just come off a major triumph on Mount Carmel. He has defeated, God has defeated the prophets of Baal. These are pagan prophets. God brought fire down, swallowed up the offering that Elijah had made, and, uh, and there was major reform. All the people start to say, I think God's going to be our God from now on. And uh, there is a, a revival, and the king, Ahab, turns back to God, and there's rain that comes, droughts. So, you know, hope, good stuff, good stuff is happening. And then Jezebel gets involved. Enter Jezebel. Jezebel is the pagan wife of Ahab, a queen, an idolater. She's never really liked Elijah or any of his guild, the prophets. And she pulls rank on her husband and says, no, no reforms, no revival. Uh, She didn't do anything about the rain, actually, which is interesting. But she goes after the prophet. She says to Elijah, in essence, this is my translation, tomorrow I'm going to eat you for lunch. Elijah gets word, and he's discouraged. Let's pick up the story here. Would you open up your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 19? You'll find that on page 284. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 10, that first section there. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. 
It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and laid down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. In the year 2000, a man named Stuart Manley opened a box. He and his wife, Mary, were booksellers, used bookstore, small shop in northern England uh, called Barter Books. And as he dug through the books and laid them on the floor, there was something in the bottom of the box, and it was a folded sheet of paper. He unfolded it, and it was a poster. Uh, on a red field, there was a crown and the words, now familiar to you, keep calm and carry on. He had never seen this poster before, didn't know the story of it, but he framed it and hung it over the cash register in the store. And as customers came, they admired it and asked the story about it. Americans have come to know and cherish these words uh, since then. They're probably familiar to you. They've been put on jewelry and T-shirts and duffel bags. They've been merchandised as we do so well in America. Uh, they've been morphed into things like keep uh, calm and have a cupcake, keep spending and carry on shopping. And my favorite, don't panic and fake a British accent. Most of us assume that these posters were scattered across London during the 1939-1940 German Blitz when London was bombed, devastatingly so, and yet that's not true. These posters were never hung. They were never used at all. They had been created by the Ministry of Information as the final in a series of three to be used in the event of a German invasion of England. But they become so popular now by Americans, and interestingly, even Germans uh, love this poster, uh, because there's something sort of intrinsically British about it. You know, that stiff upper lip business in the face of crisis. Keep calm and carry on. Isn't it, does it warm your heart? You just get an image of, of, uh, of King George VI sitting at a table with you in the midst of crisis. The whole world is collapsing. He's got a little soot on him, but he is spreading clotted cream on a scone, and all is well. <laughs> in the world. Discouraged me? Never. Right? Keep calm 
and carry on. As Americans, our slogan, you know, from the Cold War era was duck and cover. I think this has a better ring to it. The, que the question is for you, when you get discouraged, where do you go? What do you do? Now, Elijah just draws a blank on that question. His slogan won't be keep calm or duck and cover. It's going to be lie down and die. Have you ever tried that one? What's a broom tree anyways? Lie down and die. See, Elijah's just received bad news. Do you see that here in verse 2? We see a messenger has come from Jezebel. Messenger, I stress that word because that's how you got your news in the ancient world. Someone would come, a courier, a herald, and would give you some news. And a mess Jezebel has sent a messenger. But I want you to notice there are two messengers in this story. It's kind of a story here of two messages and two locations. The first messenger comes from Jezebel with bad news. Uh, the messenger says, you know, Ahab is folded. Jezebel is triumphant. Everything you saw yesterday happen is just going away like that. It's evaporated. And he's discouraged. He loses heart. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the news. I read the paper or whatever in the morning. And um, even before I finish my breakfast, I've lost heart. It's all this news. It's economic, political, environmental, social, religious. There's just so much bad news out there in the world. And then sometimes the news is even more personal than that. And it is for Elijah as well. Um, Jezebel wants you to know you're not going to live another day. Time is up for you. And we get messages like this as well, don't we? Um, there's a message that that comes, a little piece of paper in the hand of a physician who says, this is a pathology report, and it's positive. There's a message on the refrigerator from that important person in your life that says the relationship is over. Uh, there's a, a, an electronic message that you receive when you've been looking for a job for over a year, and you get this impersonal message that says, keep looking. There's a bill that comes in the mail that says, everything that you've been doing and working for is about to be swallowed up and crumbling debt. You've been working so hard, you've been trying to make a way, but there is no way. It's bad news. But as I say, there's another message. There's another messenger in Elijah's life, and it's very easy to miss it because in verse 5, it's translated differently. In verse 5, we read, suddenly an angel touched him. Now, the Hebrew word for messenger and angel are identical. So here the storyteller, the historian, is very cleverly set you up. He wants you to know there are two messengers in Elijah's life at this point. There's a messenger that Jezebel has sent, and there's a messenger, it's truly an angel, but it's a messenger that the Lord has sent. There is good news, and there is bad news, side by side in Elijah's life, and he's got to decide who he is listening to. This is the first point I want to make. When you get discouraged, God is always eager to do something in you. I know there's bad news. There's bad news everywhere. You've got bad news if you look hard enough. I've got the gift of looking hard for bad news. You know that story about the patient that comes in the doctor's office and the doctor turns gray and he knows it's not good and the doctor says, yeah, it's really bad. I don't think you're going to make it. I'm not going to make it. How long do I have? And he says, oh, I'm 10 or t 9. Nine what? Nine weeks, months, days? Seven, eight, seven, six, five, four, three. It's that bad, right? And there is bad news in our lives. But there is always, always, always good news in your life. God makes sure of that. That's the nature of God. 
Jesus is the messenger of God who sends good news into your life at every point. And notice how tender it is. God doesn't say to Elijah, oh man, my faithful servants never get discouraged. He doesn't criticize him for his discouragement. He comes alongside with a beautiful bedside manner. Doesn't say anything. The, the messenger just touches him and sets a cake of bread warm on a rock by his head and a jar of water. Just says, get up. You're going to need strength. I'm going to put strength inside of you. The kind of strength that will allow you to journey through the bad news into the good news. I want to do something inside of you. See, no matter how bad your news is this morning, how deep your discouragement, God can say to you right now, I've got you here so that I can do something inside of you, something wonderful. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 29, 11, we read, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. He's talking to people in exile. I know the plans. It's okay. Plans for your welfare and not for your harm to give you a future with hope. He's not saying that bad news is good news. That's bad theology. He says, I can lead you through Bad news, because of my good news. There's a victory in your life. Your past, your limitations, your shame, your failure, none of these things define you. Take a snapshot of your life right now. Okay, I admit, it doesn't look so good. But I want to show you my future. Hope. In 1997, Mariano Rivera had reason to be discouraged. Not just because he had to play for the Yankees. But because his fastball was going to seed. Uh, Rivera, a boy from Panama with extraordinary talents, was eventually recruited by the Yankees, pulled up just two seasons prior to this spring as a fastball starter. His first game, he loses 10 to nothing. And there's a string of horrible starts. And he's at uh, camp trying to get his pitch over the plate he throws it fast and hard but the pitch started to move and it did this funny weird squiggly thing just as it hit the plate and the coaches tried to fix it Rivera tried to fix it no one could fix this pitch and management in the office they start to talk about trading him away but in all that bad news did Rivera lose hope no why because he had just met Jesus Christ He had just heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And he said, I don't know how to fix this problem. I don't know what it means. But here's what I know. Let's go with it. And he started to throw that ball again and again and again. And it became the greatest cutting fastball in the history of baseball. And he became the greatest closer in the history of baseball. This ball goes so fast and it moves over the plate. Uh, They call it the buzzsaw. In the uh, World Series in 1999, he broke one batter, uh, batter's bat, three times in one at bat. Just cuts the bat right in half. And he's lucky enough to make connection with it. This is amazing. And, and it comes out of his failure. And it comes out of the thing he couldn't do. He wouldn't have to pitch another pitch. And it was always a, cu- a, cu- a cutter. With Martinez. I mean, um, Ramirez. Did I get that right? I'm a Red Sox fan. I don't have to keep track of your players. (laughs) Rivera. Hey, they're coming to town. Be careful. Um, All right. It was church, right? Um, Okay. When you get discouraged, God always is eager to do something in you. 
When you can't do anything in the world, he's saying to you, I'm eager to do something in you. The journey will not be too much for you. You get it? Let's move on. Because, because God moves Elijah on. This is relocation project. We're coming to that question. Why are you here? That's the crux of this passage. Because God is not just eager to do something in you. He's also to do, eager to do something through you. This is the amazing thing. He says, the angel does, get up, Elijah. See that in verse 7 and 8? Get up. Get up and go. And he takes him on a trip. This is a kind of a sci-fi, fantastical, ghost of Christmas past kind of trip. Because it's almost like he goes back in time. He goes Back to Mount Sinai, which is, you know, down in Egypt. You know, it's nowhere near Israel. It took the Israelites 40 years to wander the desert to get to the promised land from this. And in 40 days, notice the number, God takes Elijah back to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. It's like he takes him back in time, 600 years, to this place. And it's there, as Elijah stands on the mountain, where, where God had given Moses and his people the Ten Commandments. It's there that God asks this interesting question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, to me, if I were Elijah, the answer would be obvious. Your, your angel brought me here, right? But Elijah's not quite the smart aleck that I am, and so he thinks about it a little bit more, and he thinks, well, maybe the question isn't really how did you get here, but he's asking me what? What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah decides to interpret the question as, you know, what were you doing under the broom tree? And we get his little story here in verse 10. Well, I, I, I've been so passionate about you, God. Um, but all the Israelites, everybody around me has stopped believing in you. Um, they've forgotten your promises. They've stopped worshiping you. They, they've, they've killed good people like me, the prophets. And I'm the only one left. And I, I'm just ready to die. He's, he's, he thinks that God's asking about what were you doing there under the broom tree. But God's not asking what were you doing there. You heard the question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, if I were to translate the Hebrew very woodenly or literally at this point, here's what it would read. What for you is this place, Elijah? That's how the Hebrew reads. What for you is this place, Elijah? Now we see what God's asking him. What's the meaning of this mountain, Elijah? I know the meaning of the broom tree. You're discouraged. What's the meaning of the mountain? Elijah. And he's got to think. This mountain, this mountain, where am I? Rock and wind and fire and earthquake. And where? What is this place? And then he remembers. This is the place where God had taken discouraged, displaced slaves and made them the people of the great high king. Ambassadors of hope in the world. People he's so blessed that they were gonna, it would have to bless the nation, nations. It would happen almost accidentally. This is the place where the great king, the king of kings, the king of heaven and earth showed up and said, I love you. You're, you're my people. And now Elijah knows. I mean, it's like God has bent the space-time continuum to show him that God's passion has not diminished. That the king's rule has not been compromised. It's still, as far as God is concerned, game on. And God says, get up and go, Elijah. 
Go. Did you notice? We didn't read this. If you look at the end of the chapter, see, God recommissions him. He says, I want you to go anoint three people. Hazael, who's not even in Israel, is a king of Aram, another nation altogether. I want you to anoint Yehu, who's not the king in the south. He's the king up in the northern kingdom, Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha. So be your successor to carry on your work. They seem like small little gestures. You go, that's it? No miracles, just that? That's it? Well, those three names are important names. Those are the three people who will bring down the wicked tyranny of Jezebel and end her empire. See, with these three simple acts, Elijah, discouraged as he is, will be a game changer. That's what this story is all about. That's why God brought him to the mountain. So I want to send you back out because I'm not done with you. The world's done with you, but I'm not done with you. It's good news. I know what this is. This is the greatest locker room talk in the history of the world. Right? Some of you know this story. In 1993, the Buffalo Bills entered the locker room at halftime behind 21 to 0. No team in NFL history has ever overcome a deficit like that in the playoffs. There they were, they're playing Houston Oilers, all the Houston radio broadcasters. There's this quote of a guy saying, well, they turned the lights on this morning, the stadium, but they could turn them off now on the Buffalo Bills. For them, the game was over. But not for the coaches. As they came into that locker room, the coaches, they had a message. Oh, yeah, there was wind and fire and an earthquake as they rallied their troops. And they said, the world says this game is over, but I say to you, this is just halftime. You get out there and go. And go they did. And they put points on the board and they put the game into overtime and then they won it, 41 to 38. They call it the comeback. And Jesus, after they put him on a cross, would come back from the dead and he would stand on a mountain and he would look his disciples and a bunch of other people in the eyes and they were doubting, the text tells us. They were doubting. You look at it, Matthew 28 Jesus looks at them and he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you, us, yeah, you, go and make disciples of all the nations. They're not done with me and they're not done with you either. And my friends, I don't know where you're going to find yourself Monday morning. I don't know who you'll be with. I don't know what they think about you. But I want you to be sure you know you are a daughter. You are a son of the great high king of heaven. Don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. You are on a mission. That's what your life is about. A mission to the world. This is what the story of the monarchy is all about. This segment in the Bible, as we're looking at the story arc, monarchy, it's all about this. You've got a king. You've got a great king in your life. And that segment takes four books in our Bible to tell, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. It's the story of Saul and David and Solomon and Samuel. And then it's the story of 20 northern kings and 20 southern kings as the kingdom splits after Solomon. And it's kind of a depressing story at so many points. It's this cycle of discouragement back and forth again and again. It's kind of hard to read. You go, really, again? We're doing this again? But underneath it all is the promise of a faithful God who had said to David, someday I'm going to establish the throne of your son forever. A king is coming into this world that will rule over all and will make all things new. And that's the source of my hope 
And it can be the source of yours as well. There are really two stories, two locations, two stories. There's a story under the broom tree. And we just go, man, nothing's right. I, I can't see the future. I, I'm stuck. I'm exhausted. Then there's a story on the mountain. God doesn't have to physically take you to the mountain, does he? But he can, he can open up the Bible with you and say, read my story. Let me, in your imagination, take you to these great points in the grand narrative of my redemptive work so that you can see who you really are and who I really am and what we can do together as you walk with me in faith. You have a king in your life. When the world tells you it's over, you say, "Uh uh-uh, with Jesus, there's always something more. He wants to do something in me and he wants to do something through me. In 1949, the communist revolution expelled all of the missionaries from China and the world said, well, that's it. It's been nice. Turn off the lights. The game is over for the church in China. And all the hand-wringing in the West for decade after decade, we just assumed we'd have to start over. But you know that's not true, do you? don't you? Conservatively, the BBC estimates that there are more than 60 million followers of Jesus Christ. I went with a conservative number for you this morning. I also saw 150 million. I don't know if I believe that. But it's remarkable what God has done. I mean, these are a group of people who said, no, there's no king but Chairman Mao. Uh, persecuted the church, tried to stamp it out of existence, and it has flourished despite our discouragements. And now, as you know, China is leading the world. And, And China is going around the world, and these followers of Jesus Christ are going with it. Go. The game's not over, friends. Just getting started. I've told you before about one of my best friends, Steve, He's gone from the penthouse to the outhouse, medically speaking. He's, he's been, he's been a, he's a Harvard PhD professor, um, a physician himself, and now he's a patient whose probabilities of surviving uh, more than a, a handful of weeks are just highly limited. He's got cancer, and he's got a fungal infection in his lungs and you can't treat them both at the same time and we're just watching the clock and it's discouraging but I want to tell you he's not discouraged he's not telling the story of the broom tree he's telling the story of a mountain and a great high king in his life it's amazing to see him live how many days does he have I don't know but he's living like he's got a king he's living royally We have ways, we have ways of getting you out of here. Okay, (laughs) we're back. My friend Steve, he treats the patients uh, as though they matter to God. He treats the staff as though he's there to serve them. He treats his family as though he's giving his life for them. He treats me uh, as though I were the only one who mattered as he prays for me and my family daily. And I'll tell you, here's a guy who knows that he's commissioned so let me ask you, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? God brought you here this morning. What are you doing here this morning? If you are in your own plan, in your own strength, and in your own hope, I want to tell you, friends, you are in trouble. But if you are in God's plan, God's strength, God's hope, then there's still more to come. Where are you? 
What if God were to take you on a fantastical tour? And if you want, close your eyes and just imagine. I mean, what if God had taken you all the way back through the, your life from the very beginning and showed you those points where you remember him being very close to you, just kind of breaking through, looking through a dim glass at you or bumping into you. This is your king all along, calling you back to him. Maybe somebody has loved you when you didn't deserve it. Maybe there was a word of encouragement. Maybe someone taught you a little bit about Jesus. How does that help you think differently about where you are today? What if he took you on a fantastical Bible tour and you went back in time and you yourself could see with your own eyes Mount Sinai burning with smoke? What if you could come to the cross and see your Savior Jesus, the great King, dying for you, for your sins so you could be forgiven? What if you saw the empty tomb where he no longer lies in the darkness of life but is alive and risen? What if you heard him commission you on that mountain as you stood before him doubting and he said, I've got a plan for your life. Go and make disciples what if you could be in the upper room when the whole place is shaking with smoke and fire and wind, the Holy Spirit's coming upon the church just as he's here with us today? Would that affect the way you think about your discouragement, your bad news? I hope it would. On Christmas Day in 1939, a king spoke to a nation shaking before tyranny. It was King George VI. He had overcome his speech impediment sufficiently to give a radio broadcast. He sat at a table in front of a bare microphone and before legions of men, women, and children who were deeply discouraged. And he spoke. The king spoke his word. And I want to close by reading to you from the final words of King George VI on Christmas Day in 1939. A new year is at hand. We cannot tell what it will bring. If it brings peace, how thankful we shall all be. If it brings us continued struggle, we shall remain undaunted. In the meantime, I feel that we may all find a message of encouragement in the lines which, in my closing words, I would like to say to you, and then he quotes a poem. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Would you pray with me? Jesus, today we can keep calm and carry on because you've taken us on a trip back to a place where we can see life with such clarity the clarity of your love and power and your rule. You govern all things with such wisdom and grace and mercy. So we reach out our hand with so many questions and so much that is unknown and so much that is dark and we take yours to be led until the darkness be not just in our lives, but in this whole world for all peoples as bright 
as the brightest day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.